Hello, I'm Alex Mozed. Happy Friday. And you're here joining us on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And uh, on the traditional incumbent side of the equation, we're talking about Walmart right now. And so what did Walmart just do? Uh, Walmart announced that it's going to be subsidizing vendors. Uh, this is coming up for the holiday season, which obviously is a huge um, you know, period of time for any retailer or e-commerce player. And why this is interesting is because Walmart has been obviously, you know, Walmart practically invented the practice of having those staple items at all-time low prices, maybe break even, maybe they even are a loss leader. Um, but those items kind of get you in the store. Uh, or, for this matter, get you to the website. And then around that, people will naturally, hopefully, buy other stuff, and that's where you make your money back. What's interesting about this is that Walmart is now doing this in a marketplace model. So, traditionally, Walmart, they do over $500 billion in revenue. That means that Walmart buys products puts them on their balance sheet, and then resells them. They are a reseller for pretty much all that $500 billion in revenue. For maybe $10 billion or so is coming from their um, marketplace. And what that means is, the bottom of this article basically says, uh, this was an interesting stat. Walmart says it sells about 75 million unique items on its website, most of which are third-party marketplace items. That's a new stat for me. That's a very interesting stat. That's a, that's a big boy stat. That's a lot. Um, and most of which coming from third-party marketplace items. Okay, so clearly Walmart is all in on marketplace. The other thing to touch on here is that when Walmart wants to lower prices, but those products are being sold by third-party sellers. That's very different than Walmart historically saying, well, I'm just going to lower the prices on these thousand key items, and I have full ability to lower the price on those because they're my products. They're on my balance sheet. Very different situation when you want to lower the prices on products sold by other people. (laughs) That kind of creates um, some different uh, nuances to really pull that off. So basically what Walmart is doing here, this actually mimics a plan that what Amazon started doing recently is um, it gives Walmart the platform, the ability to lower the price, but then they keep the third-party seller whole. So the price that the third-party seller is listing the product for on Walmart's site or Amazon's site, that's still what the seller gets paid. But now the, the marketplace, Walmart or Amazon, can lower that price for the consumer, and then the platform takes the hit, basically, and subsidizes that value for the end consumer. Pretty interesting model. Makes a lot of sense when you think about it. I think what this really shows is that Walmart is really trying to go toe-to-toe with Amazon. And I also think that Amazon doing this uh, initially on their, uh, for, for themselves is a sign of Walmart making progress. Uh, clearly with 75 million SKUs products, that's impressive. And and Walmart is definitely getting up there. They're, they're not doing as much one-day shipping as Amazon is doing, but they are 
trying to do more and more one day shipping. They launched their unlimited grocery delivery as a subscription. You know, you I pay a hundred bucks or something like that annually as a as a prime competitor. Um, but using Walmart's foothold in grocery, I think, I think it's maybe forty percent of their overall revenue, which is massive. Um, so very interesting model. I think, again, I've said it before, long-term, I'm very bullish on Walmart's ability to be the overall number two general marketplace player. So um, let's look at Uber. I'm also long-term bullish on Uber. What has Uber now done? They are trialing a program um, that will ha- that you can specifically request a car that's pet-friendly. This is actually a big problem. I have a puppy. He's, I don't know, 16 months. I don't know if he's still technically a puppy at 16 months, but okay, he's 16 months. I've gotten into Ubers. His name is Moxie. I've gotten into Ubers with Moxie and the Ubers get grumpy that Moxie is with me. And if you've seen, if you see Moxie, it's it's hard to get mad at this dog because he's so cute. It's actually a problem. He's too cute. We get stopped on the street all the time. Anyway, uh, Uber drivers sometimes don't really like it. He's like 27 pounds. I mean, what's he going to do? He's very neat. Okay. Um, and actually, as a result of that, whenever I'm with Moxie, I go into cabs. And the cabs don't care because it's not their car. It's you know the, the cab, the medallion holder's car. So I actually always try to get in a cab when I have Moxie with me. Um, this is just another example of... The the dominant platform being Uber and ride sharing, which is now platform conglomerate status, being able to do things a little bit faster, being able to appeal a little bit better to you know part of their existing customer base than Lyft. Um, they just have more resources. They have the ability to do stuff like this uh, faster and 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 um, uh, invest more resources into it than than Lyft does. That's basically what, you know, these are the kind of competition in the margins um, that you can see them start to really flex their muscle to do Uber pet is what they're calling it. And I'll be using it. So, and I'm sure a lot of people will, unless you're living under a rock, this whole country is awash in pet dog fever. It's everywhere. People love pets. Dogs are going bonkers right now. Dogs are in. And uh, I think this is going to be a slam dunk. I really do. Back to traditional incumbent. Comcast. I really like this title. They fake flex. Um, why do I like this title? Well, their, their thing, their like, uh, you know, their, their, their box in the home is called Flex. And um, it's their video platform box. You know, it goes it goes into the home, and this is their um, CTO Matt Zalesko. He was talking about it and 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 the future roadmap for it, and so they're saying Zalesko said that that Comcast is very deliberate about the apps it brings onto the platform. This would be a kind of like a development platform. If you think about like um, Apple TV. Um, you know, the, the uh, Amazon, like, Kindle Firebox, um, where these are, you know, kind of like dongle units. And um, you can have TV apps that, that run on these devices. So he's saying Comcast is very deliberate about the apps they bring onto the platform. 
I'm not sure we'll ever throw the gates open and let all the apps in, Zalesko said. I don't know. It's just not the thinking that you would want to hear from the CTO, right? You would want him to be saying, how do I get as many apps as possible onto my platform? Not, yeah, we want to keep this thing, A, really controlled. Oh, and B, we're going to just start buying companies. Um, <laughs> so, by the way, my reading between through the lines on this is that no one wants to build an app for Flex. Who's making an app for Flex? I don't know. I don't think really anyone's building an app for Flex. I think people are building apps for Apple TV, for Amazon devices, uh, you know, Xbox, you know, the actual uh, gaming systems. I don't think Flex is really anywhere on the top of that list. If I'm a, if I'm a developer and I want to get distribution, I, I don't think that the development environment to make an app for Flex. And this is pure me stereotyping here and just I haven't really looked at the technical platform. But I just don't think that people are bursting down their doors and saying, hey, uh, let me go make an app for you. Um, I don't know if they've really figured out how to help people monetize and pay for these apps. How seamless is that? I can guarantee you the experience on this thing is just not as good as it would be on an Apple TV or any tech monopolies hardware in the home. And from the messaging that you want to have, it's the wrong messaging, A. And B, I don't think that they actually have a lot of interest. It just, it's much, much ado about nothing, basically. So... It's just more of the same. This stuff really just hurts the incumbents. You don't take them seriously when they say, oh, this is the innovation that we're doing. And you you just start to analyze all of it with extreme scrutiny. And if maybe some of it actually is real, um, but the general industry is very good at puffing their chest, but not good at delivering. So this one, a little outside of the lines of uh, you know tech monopoly and, and so on and so forth, but um, you know, we spoke yesterday about trade policy, about Section 230, uh, and, and what that does for platform immunity going abroad to Japan and to China. I mean, not China, Canada and Mexico. Um, this one has just never made any sense to me. And I would ask our viewers, um, what am I missing on this? Because I'm trying to understand this one and it just doesn't make any sense to me. So this guy, he worked. For Bill Clinton, he worked for H.W. Bush, um, always on the kind of economic advisor, kind of trade policy perspective. And this guy, Broadman, uh, says that Trump's focus on the merchandise bilateral trade deficit uh, is an economically meaningless metric. So the fact that the U.S. has a massive trade deficit, I think it's over $600 billion, uh, is a meaningless metric. And, and here's, the th here's why that doesn't make, it just doesn't make sense to me. So this is the way that you calculate GDP. GDP equals C plus I plus G plus parentheses X minus M. Okay, what does that mean? The C is private consumption. So private consumption uh, plus gross investment, plus government investment, plus government spending. So if you think about those four things, those are basically all the different mechanisms that we are consuming, 
some kind of good or service in the United States, right? So these are um, kind of U.S. specific measurements. This is GDP is gross domestic product, which is the measure of how much production our economy has. So you're looking at consumption, investment from the private sector, from the government sector, and you're looking at how much the government is spending. Those are going to give you a good idea of how much we're consuming and spending and buying, right? Which is consumption and and we to consume it, you've got to make it. Okay, gross, to, gross domestic product. Now, the last part is X minus M. X minus M is exports minus imports. So when we have a negative, when we have a trade deficit of negative, say, $600 billion, what that means is we are importing 600 more billion dollars than we are exporting, right? So we are buying, I don't know, let's say I'm just making this part, this number up, but let's say we are exporting $400 billion of goods and we are importing trillion dollars worth of goods, right? That would give you 600, negative $600 billion. That would give you a $600 billion trade deficit. Now, um, I don't exactly know what we are exporting and, and the total amount of imports, but I know there's roughly a $600 billion trade deficit. Okay. Why it doesn't make sense to say that, that a trade deficit is an economically meaningless metric is because if you calculate GDP, and our GDP is about $20 trillion in the United States, okay? So $20 trillion and minus $600 billion, which means, let's say that you, let's say we break even um, and, and, our, and our trade deficit is nil. Let's say X minus M equals zero. That means that you would essentially add back $600 billion and GDP would now be at trillion, Um, which for the United States to have, again, for for our GDP to go up by 25 basis points. So if if we're at 2.5 and it goes to 2.75, that's a very big deal, a very big deal. Um, And markets and the stock market and a lot of things move even on a 10 basis point swing in GDP. So when you do the math, what's $600 billion uh, over $20 trillion? Um, yeah, you're right around like 27, 28-ish basis points. It's, it's between, you know, 25, 30 basis. It's a material amount of, um, of dollars of essentially GDP. So I don't know, like... I just don't understand why that metric is continuously kind of poo-pooed. Uh, why this guy, who this is literally his job, um, he's a trade policy guy, says, oh, it's meaningless. It doesn't matter. I just don't get it. So I would love to understand the other perspective on it or what I'm missing in all of this. But um, yeah, it kind of seems like a material thing to me. Anyway, um, so... Mr. Zuckerberg. Mr. Zuckerberg was giving a speech yesterday at Georgetown University. And the media, the media really does not like Mark Zuckerberg. Okay. Now the media will tell you Zuckerberg's a really bad guy. 
because uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook don't respect our privacy and, you know, they're spreading fake news. <laughs> it's ironic. And all these kinds of things. Um, do you want to know the real reason why the media doesn't like Zuckerberg or Facebook? Okay. It's because he put him out of a job and he took all their money. <laughs> okay. You guys know I like South Park. You know, the, they took our jobs thing, which was just on the last episode of South Park. Um, yeah. Zuckerberg took the media's jobs. They're all gone. They don't make any more money. Literally, the media companies that are around now are basically being bankrolled by billionaires. Um, Jeff Bezos, Washington Post. The media business is gone. The profits have been sucked out of the industry. And uh, they really haven't innovated on their business model. So that is the real reason why the media doesn't like Zuckerberg. That's at the top of uh, of the list. Then there's all these kind of sub bullets. And you have to um, read into those with a, with a giant grain of salt. Let me play for you uh, a minute of, of Zuckerberg's speech yesterday from Georgetown. And then we'll come back to this. Someone once told me that our founding fathers thought that free expression was like air. You don't miss it until it's gone. When people don't feel like they can express themselves, they lose faith in democracy and are more likely to support populist parties that prioritize specific policy outcomes over the health of our democratic and civic norms. I'm a little more optimistic. I don't think we need to lose our freedom of expression to realize how important it is. I think that people get it and, and understand and appreciate the voice that they have now. And at some fundamental level, I think that most people believe in their fellow people too. And as long as our governments respect people's right to express themselves, as long as our platforms live up to their responsibilities to support expression and prevent harm, and as long as we all commit to being open and making space for more perspectives, I think we're going to make progress. It's going to take time, but I think that we're going to work through this moment. Generally, I, uh, I, I agree with Mark. I think he's receiving a lot of unfair criticism from the media, as we've discussed, from Benioff, Mark Benioff, founder of Salesforce. We spoke about him yesterday, how he said that we should break up Facebook. Uh, and I think Benioff is really kind of politically and emotionally kind of uh, charged in, in a lot of his statements. Policing Facebook and having more um, restriction on what you can say on Facebook is a bad thing. Like, Period. Uh, full stop. I think the challenge that Facebook has in front of it is actually something that Zuckerberg asked to be regulated for back in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival, which we covered many times. And I won't play that video for you. But basically what Zuckerberg says is, hey, I'm not going to be able to figure out, Facebook is not going to be able to figure out what the line is between us taking down content that is abusive or hateful in nature and a violation of free speech. We're trying to figure this out. They're investing billions of dollars in this, by the way, uh, in costs to try and figure this out. 
But this really needs to be a public conversation. This needs to be something that uh, the government provides direction on about where that line is. Oh, by the way, this has happened throughout history of this country where you can't say certain things in public or we have libel laws. Uh, if you're trying to uh, purposely, you know, uh, um, uh, kind of harass or um, hurt someone's profile or character, uh, or you're trying to uh, harass them, or you're, you know, uh, you know, being too aggressive, uh, or if you yell fire in a uh, movie theater, there, there are boundaries, and this has been part of public discourse, and there are debates on this. And then the government helps to provide guidance. The knee-jerk reaction that Facebook is bad and that there are political ads which are, quote, fake news, um, and that Facebook is helping to disseminate these, and uh, therefore, you know, we need to break up Facebook, it really is just un-American. Uh, it really goes against the whole principle of this country. And what makes this country so great around free speech? And the irony is all of this is happening in the same week with the whole thing that's going on with China, and the NBA and Hong Kong and all this kind of stuff. Yet on the flip side, we have people saying that, you know, Facebook is horrible. They should censor uh, the content creators more. I'm actually on the other end of the spectrum on this. I think Facebook needs to actually be much uh, less restrictive in the content that they take down. With one caveat, one big caveat, and the big caveat is to provide transparency to regulators and to the public, for that matter, on how they do matchmaking. And that's something that really no one has, has dove into at this point, which is how do platforms do matchmaking? Whether I'm Google and I'm connecting you to a website, Amazon, I'm connecting you to a third-party seller, I'm Facebook, and what content am I showing you on your feed? There's pretty much zero transparency on how these algorithms and the matchmaking protocols are working. I think there needs to be transparency there. And if the platform is changing these rules and these algorithms, why? And what are they doing? What are the changes? And, and, and what are, what's the uh, result of that? And that's something that could very easily be monitored and spot checked by a regulator like the FTC. That needs a lot more visibility, A. B, if you are a content creator that is being silenced uh, or banned or penalized on a platform, you need a forum to have an independent review. Um, this is something that Zuckerberg has actually helped to advocate for, that the government could help to provide, is that independent review council. He's asking for the help, and he's not getting it, right? And I don't think that that is... Uh, I mean, that's really on the government at this point. That's really on the regulators. That's really on the FTC. Um, he's literally explicitly asked uh, for more involvement. Why has he done that? Well, hey, I think he, you know, yeah, he, he thinks it's needed. But who really wants to be regulated? I think the larger thing is he knows there's another election in 12 months and people are going to get very grumpy with Facebook because they're not going to be happy with the results. At least half of the aside is not going to be happy and they're going to blame Facebook and they're already starting to blame Facebook. And so that's really where you need this guidance from the government. A, it's just kind of a shield for how Facebook is finding this balance and, and what technology are they building and how are they um, rolling this out? If you break up Facebook, 
uh, it doesn't actually solve any of these problems. Two reasons why. One, um, the infrastructure needed to actually put policies in place, monitor the content that's created, and then act upon it, it costs a lot of money. And so now if you split up Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, you now actually have to build three different systems. And guess what? They're not going to be as strong as if you were able to centrally uh, build this technology and then leverage it across all three different networks. So you're actually going to hurt the effectiveness of the tech company, of the platform company to enforce whatever the rules and policies are, which still, if you break up Facebook, you're still in the same place where you don't have little to any guidance on what the right policies are in the first place. The second reason why this is just a bad idea to break up Facebook, it's a selfish one. It's a selfish one for the United States. What is that reason? Oh, well, um, it's called um, influence abroad. And if you break up our tech monopolies and weaken them, then we will just have less power outside of the United States. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. You want to know what country understands this all too well? Oh, yeah, China. This was what I spoke about on yesterday's episode. China understands this. They're very smart. You cannot underestimate, underestimate them. And they absolutely understand how tech platform companies give them huge influence abroad. And they are using it. So... One is a selfish reason for the U.S., and the other one is just a, a you know the technical reason. Who cares about technicalities these days? The functional, actually, logistics of how you would actually monitor and regulate a content ecosystem. So, um, the last point I'll make on this is, if I was to compare Facebook's morality. And compare them to, let's say, Apple and Google. And we look at things like privacy. Facebook wins. Facebook, without a doubt, on a, from a moral high ground standpoint, I put way above Apple. I put way above Google. It's not even a question. Um. Facebook deliberately decided not to go to China because, and many other countries because those countries demanded that they have access to the data and that the, the servers have to be stored in their country, which means they're going to get access to all the data. And Zuckerberg said, um, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> no. And so, and, and he's publicly said, look, that's just going to mean we can't go operate in certain countries. And he's okay with that. Um, Google, we know that Sundar has been trying to get back in China. I think he's now tried to distance himself from those decisions, but there are no ifs or buts here. No qualms about it. Sundar, CEO of Google, absolutely wanted to get back into China. Maybe he still does. I don't know, but probably not a good thing to be associated with right now. A Apple? Apple has literally given encryption keys to the Chinese government so that people can get in. Apple has literally downplayed um, loopholes that the Chinese government was using to get into their operating system to track down the Uyghur population in China. Um, and, you know, that's the Muslim population in China. And China's been doing some uh, apparently not so nice things to that population. So, um, moral high ground, Facebook wins. Last point on this is this whole idea of like policing content and, 
you know, we need to regulate what content people see and these kinds of things. Um, it kind of goes back to the similar sentiment when uh, a few episodes ago when, when I was talking about how um, the uh, the director from the uh, like Health and Human Services said, hey, we should make it easy for patients, healthcare patients, to transfer their electronic medical record to Apple Health. And uh, Apple's been doing deals with the uh, EHR companies, the electronic health record companies, to make that that integration and transfer of data seamless. And uh, the American Medical Association and other healthcare nonprofits said, oh, no, 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 there's privacy considerations here. Um, we need to put the, you know, press pause on this because, because um, consumers don't know uh, what Apple might do with their data once it's in Apple Health. All of this really goes down to, um, do you generally think that the average American is stupid? Or not? Do they have a brain? Can they think for themselves? Um, and I would say, yeah, they're actually pretty smart. Um, they're actually pretty adept and understand what's going on. And if I want to share my data with Apple, uh, you don't think that they understand Apple's in the news every other week around privacy, you know, this, that. Um, it's their decision. And uh, I think Americans can make up their own mind based upon what they see on Facebook, or if they know it's an ad and Facebook is saying, this is a political ad. Um, you know, I mean, that they're just sheep and they're going to literally just do whatever the ad is telling them to do. I, I think that these critics um, just aren't putting enough faith in the, uh, in, in the individual, um, which is the American people and the public to uh, make up their own minds and when you want to now further regulate the content that's coming through the content platform, um, that just throws all kinds of red flags up for me. And I'm really glad that Zuckerberg is taking a stand on this and, uh, and not backing down on it. He is receiving bipartisan criticism on this. And it's, uh, it's weird. It just not, I, I just, it seems un-American to me. Um, so look, power to Zuckerberg, keep it going, Zucky. And, uh, I'm really glad. I'm really glad to, uh, to end this on a high note. Have a great weekend, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week.